Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 24th, 2017, and this is episode 2049 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is a Monday. That means it's a listener feedback show. These are all emails or other ways that I was contacted, sent to me. Uh, and if you send an email, the best way to do that is to send it to Jack at the Survival Podcast.com. Make sure the letters TSPC all together as though they're one word or in the subject line. That will mean that it will get pulled out of the spam box eventually if it happens to go in there. Maybe not right away. Sometimes I get pretty sloppy with that, but sooner or later I will see your email no matter what it is if you put TSPC in the subject line. Don't include them all. Don't answer them all, but I do try to read them all and do try to take your feedback. And a lot of times, remember this, a lot of times things you guys send me, even if it doesn't end up directly on the air, it gets used on Facebook and Twitter or it gets referenced in other, it gets referenced in episodes where it's maybe not the main thing and helps me shape and form my opinion about what's going on by being fully informed. You guys are my research staff, so keep the emails coming. Again, TSPC in the subject line is the best way to make sure that I see your email. Uh, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, I've got some follow-up on net neutrality objections, and I I started doing a lot of work on this, and I was going to put together like a 30-minute freaking piece, uh, technically refuting everything that was claimed, and I'm going to be much briefer with it, and I'm going to tell you the cut and dry of the reality of things and probably spend five minutes on it at most, because otherwise I think you're going to snore off and go to sleep. Um, you know, most people don't get into the technical intricacies of this stuff, um, but there's a well-written objection, while many ways factually wrong, that was posted in the Facebook group on uh, my piece on net neutrality. I'll refute that uh, almost line by line, but not, not completely, because again, you'll get bored. I'll refute it in a way that'll make sense to you no matter what your technical knowledge level is on Internet technology. Uh, next up, I'm going to have a new look here for you at Universal Basic Income. I'm actually going to play uh, a piece from a YouTube channel called Big Think, and I am going to uh, let this guy speak, and I'm going to come back and tell you my thoughts on what he's saying. I don't necessarily agree with him, but I don't think he's wrong about kind of where we're headed, now, whether or not we should do it the way he's proposing. Or, uh, In fact, I don't know. I think you'll agree that the guy is pretty affable. He's not someone that's telling you the way things should be. He's, he often says, I'm not sure, I don't know, I, I think maybe I'm not an expert. I, I, I like people that are willing to go into these controversial areas and, and use that tag rather than, we should just do this because it's the right thing with no understanding of how that actually works. Also, tons of emails on the Ethereum hack and millions of dollars are stolen and you know Ethereum is going to die and oh my god. Um, no, I'm going to tell you why the latest Ethereum hack that did cost like $30 million is actually good news for cryptocurrency. It makes the strongest case for cryptocurrency as a thing that I have ever seen. When you actually understand what really happened and what was done to combat it. Question on the propagation of strawberry plants. Yeah, we've got lots of variety today. The importance of procedures and protocols with something as simple as a trailer. Yeah. Uh, when an infestation of a pest isn't your fault or anything wrong with your property. I think that's what's going on here. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, some kind of reality sanity check with this belief that, you know, just by having good soil and healthy plants, we can solve every problem and every pest 
with no additional steps because nature knows what it's doing. Nature does know what it's doing, but sometimes nature says, hey, uh, pests got to eat too. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it. I think it'll make a lot of sense. And it might make some of you feel a little bit better about some of the problems that you've had with your homesteads and your gardens and your permaculture and stuff like that. Um, a story on when a private citizen fixes something, government destroys it. And while civil asset forfeiture is, is completely unconstitutional. Uh, I'm going to try to get above the whole, well, it's useful and, you know, it does prevent crime and, you know, it helps offset the cost of service. I'm going to try to get above all of that and just explain to you why it's just unconstitutional and why our founders made sure it was unconstitutional in the first place and why it should be opposed and why the only real solution is for someone to get this before the Supreme Court in our current system. That's the, it's the only solution to solve this problem permanently. Anyway, before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5-10% to 10 of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at this year in history. Uh, we are up to the year 30 AD in our walk through history. Uh, and we have this in the TSP Wiki, contributed by David Verne. Copedendum of Roman history. I'll probably make these room these these names wrong, but I'll do my best. Marcus Vilius Praetorcolus completes his Copedendum of Roman history this year. It covers Roman history from the Trojan War up to the death of Livia last year. His history is not the most accurate. He being praised upon his patron Tiberius. He also praised St. Janus, who was a friend. My take by David Verne. During this period, the only people with enough time to write history were senators or wealthy private citizens. Most histories written by Romans were biased and inaccurate, but modern historians are able to fact-check these histories through archaeological evidence and checking multiple ancient sources. Once this is done, they can tell whether an ancient historian is writing with more fact or rhetoric, which I'm sure is true. It makes me think about modern day, though, and like if somebody ever goes through all the shit that was written by people today about what's going on today, how much of it will they see as history? How much will they see of it as rhetoric? And how much will they see of it as nonsense? And, and how much of it that will be seen as nonsense is not seen by nonsense by those writing it or those recording it or those you know making any kind of record of it? Because here's what I mean. If a person that's like from, you know, like Yuppieville, California or New York City downtown um, gives their opinion as though it's fact about how people really feel about a political issue right now, And if a person, let's say, from farm country gives their opinion about that same political issue, they're going to seem very diametrically opposed. And if it, it, the opinion is easy, because you can tell it's an opinion. But when it's like a statement of like public support for, you know, what type of person is for this issue, what type is against it, and is the majority really for or against it? And is the majority that's for it and against it informed as to what it really is? 
the people in those different demographics who seldom talk to other people outside of their demographic will be absolutely sure they're right. And will generally, what I see in, in most of the debates about these issues, instead of substantive debate that actually addresses the core facts, is ad hominem and name-calling. And somebody just sent me... Uh, it's an example of something you know you don't usually put on the show, but something that's sent to me, you put out this this pyramid uh, graphic that I thought was awesome, and it's it's you know directly addressing this type of thing, and the the kind of the pinnacle, the the very top of this pyramid is refuting the central point. So in a debate, you explicitly refute the central point, okay. And then the next tier down, which is obviously less powerful, is refutation. Find a mistake and explains why it's mistaken, maybe uses quotes to make a case. Then there's counter-argument, a yet, a, a yet lower level of objection. Contradicts and then backs up the contradiction with reasoning and or supporting evidence. I find the three of those to be generally compelling. Generally compelling. Then we have contradiction. States the opposing case with little or no supporting evidence. I find that to be a weakening position, but I also accept it on, like, online and stuff. Like, well, how many times have you done that? How many times have you made this case to where the point you're just like, here it is. If you really care, you'll go learn about it. Right? So sometimes it's not that they don't have it. They're just tired. All right? Then we start to really drop in the course of intellectual and logical argument. The next level down, responding to tone, criticizes to the tone of the writing without attacking the substance of the argument. That's mean. I can't believe you said it that way. I find that to be offensive. Right? This is, you've, there is no actual response to the point at this point. At this point and everything below it, you've lost, with one exception we'll get to at the very end, the bottom. Hey, the next one is ad hominem. Attacks the characteristics or authority of the writer without addressing the substance of the argument. Oh, that comes from Huffington Post. Oh, that comes from Red State. Oh, everybody knows that, you know, um, Breitbart is just right-wing propaganda. Okay, so you've totally ignored the point. You haven't addressed the point at all. You've attacked the source. That is the second lowest form of response. And the lowest form is name-calling. Sounds something like this. You're an asshat. You're an idiot. You're a moron. Right, So that's, that means you have nothing to respond with. And I find what I see mostly online is the bottom three and mostly the bottom two, ad hominem and name-calling and a bit of responding to tone. I see some contradiction, but I see very little you know, effective counter-argument, refutation, and refuting the central point. And I'd like to see more of it. But again, I think that is because of this disconnect, and most people believe that the majority of people are like the majority of people they know and talk to. Well, they are not. In fact, most people online have now graduate, graduated, to, graduated to the extreme. And, and what I mean by this is, for instance, I put up a meme recently that said taxes theft, basically. It was actually a little short video. And this lady that knows me well flips her shit about it, and she attacks, the first thing she does is she attacks the girl in the video. Who, who does this, here's what she said. This is generally a very nice person. Who does, who does this stupid bitch think is paying for all this shit? And something along the lines of her family migrated here to get away from that communist crap. What? 
What? And then she must be a liberal. Okay, so this person was a conservative. And they effectively had their perception bias that tax is a good thing challenged. And it went on for a lot of drivel and travel. And it never, by the way, got to counter-argument, refutation, or refuting the central point. Not once. In spite of a lot of attempts for people to get her there. right? But I just want you to think about this. Okay, so a person who says, I think tax is theft and nobody should be paying tax, and that all interactions between people should be voluntary, is attacked as a liberal, as a communist, as a democrat. Does that make any sense? Does that? Make, and I don't go along with history, but I think this is important because it'll, it'll it'll also make my brief response to the net neutrality objection make a lot more sense. Like we're just going to refute the central point and be done with this, right? Okay. So does that? But does that make any sense? A person that's opposed to taxation is a Democrat, liberal, communist, and they're ad hominem attacked that their her people migrated here. She spoke perfect English. She did look somewhat Asian. How do you know her people migrated here to escape communism? They might have migrated here long before you, by the way, and long before there was communism. They might have migrated here to get away from Chinese imperialism, or maybe J actually Japanese imperialism that was going on in the China, sub the China subcontinent. You don't know. And what the hell does that have to do with her point? So ad hominem and name-calling. And the, 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 the irony to me there was... The names being called were totally inappropriate, but you must be this because I'm that and I disagree with you. And this is why I think that a lot of times when you're reading history and you're seeing perception bias and confirmation bias and outright inaccurate information as to the totality, it's not always that the writer of the history truly meant to shape it in their view. Their view just came through in the writing. They actually believe most of what they're saying. Because there's no logical way that it makes sense to say that a person objecting to taxation is a communist, a socialist, a liberal, or a democrat. Since all of those positions require a massive amount of taxation in order to implement their ideology. And yet this person could see no, no, no understanding that those labels were completely inaccurate. They would never even concede, like, okay, I overreacted, I still disagree, but she's obviously not a communist. She's obviously not a Democrat, because Democrats love taxation. And they do. So just something to think about there. My take by Jack Spierko. Now, actually, before we go on, um, I did say that I, I, I actually see a point to the final one, didn't I? And I almost forgot that, so I don't want to forget that. So... Uh, before we move on, name-calling. When do I think name-calling is appropriate? When someone makes a post or makes an argument to me that the earth is flat. You know what? I don't have time to refute the central point. I don't have time to go out and find facts and try to prove... Because you've renounced all reason. Right? And, and, and I don't remember who it was that made the comment. It might have been Ben Franklin about it. It's just pointless to debate with a person. Maybe it was Jefferson who has renounced all reason. Right. So if you've renounced all reason, I'm going to tell you you're an asshat or a moron, and I'm going to move on. But it better. But if you're going to take that approach, it better be something like that. 
All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts for you. NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, The Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today. Click on members to learn more and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. So uh, I wanted to do a little follow-up with net neutrality. I've heard a bunch of objections to this. I want to kind of combine them all and and get as, as as quickly through this as I can so I don't bore anybody and yet keep you informed as to this uh, debate. So this guy Ryan on the Facebook uh, forum, Survival Podcast Facebook forum, says, so Jack's video podcast on net neutrality has enraged a friend of mine who is an IT manager for Amazon. By the way, that does not make you an expert on ISP uh, technology. It just doesn't. I'm sorry. Um, below is a copy and paste. Anyone with more time than me would care to correct him on this. I would appreciate it. Uh, wall of text. Unnamed user. Sure, I can't believe I had to listen to all this bullshit all the way through. I'm going to ignore all the anti-government stuff. Okay. But that's part of my central argument. All right. His description of DSL versus T1 at 8 minutes is 100% wrong. DSL users have a dedicated circuit, the DSL line to a central point. The D-SLAM that has a backhaul connection. A T1 is a modern equivalent of a lease line is a dedicated circuit to a central point, a router that has a backhaul connection. They're functionally identical. It keeps going and talks about how coax works and everything. Uh, I'm going to tell you that that's factually wrong. That's just factually wrong. They're not functionally identical. And it comes down to what's called your service level agreement. On a T1, you are guaranteed that speed in both directions all the way through with the only limit being how fast the data can come from the other source. But once it's to the central office, you are guaranteed that speed. And even go on the other side until you get to the other piece of information and ask for it in a request, you are guaranteed that throughput. However, when you get internet from a ISP, like cable internet, and they tell you you're getting speeds of 60 megabits per second because the other objection, I'm trying to put all this one, but I pay for 60 megabits. No, you don't. And I've even said no, you don't. It says right on my bill. So I refer you and all of the other ISPs will have very similar uh, terms of service to spectrum.com slash policy slash residential hyphen terms dot HTML, uh, section 11, subsection E bandwidth, uh, subsection 1. Subscriber understand and agrees the Spectrum does not guarantee that any particular amount of bandwidth on the Spectrum network or that any speed throughput of the subscriber's connection to the Spectrum network will be available to the subscriber. I can read a whole bunch more there, okay? But there's no point. That is my point. When you buy consumer-level Internet, you are buying absolutely no guarantee of any speed whatsoever. That's it. That's it. And when you buy something like a T1 or what have you, you are buying a guaranteed level of service with generally a 99.9% uptime uh, part of your agreement. And if the, subscri the, the provider should fail to provide you over, generally speaking, a calendar year, 99.9% uptime and speed, you actually get a rebate on your bill because they fail to live up to their end of the service level agreement. 
Okay? So let me go back to his objection here. He says, bigger picture, all his technical details are 15 years out of date. Okay, I'm going to concede that that's partially true. It's more like 10. But yes, many of the technologies that I'm talking about are better now than they were back then. That's fine. Uh, but it doesn't change the central objection, okay? The congestion point used to be the node, but every ISP has FTTN, by the way, even though it's 15 years out as far as you're concerned, that would be fiber to the node. Congestion happens now at the interconnects with other ISPs and content providers. Note the diagram at 535 that shows exactly that. Tons of capacity in the Verizon network, but saturated transit leaks. He's completely misrepresenting this picture. I'm not misrepresenting the picture. I put the video together that he watched by just grabbing random pictures that kind of looked like the things I was talking about so that there would be something there on YouTube so people wouldn't get bored. Okay, that was not like a diagram that I put together to make a point. Okay, within the ISP's network footprint, bandwidth is essentially free. You live in La La Land. I am sorry, no, bandwidth is not essentially free within the ISP network because the ISP is spending billions upon billions of dollars just to run the equipment that provides said bandwidth. Go look at their bill for electricity. Break out their bill, not just for electric. Forget the electricity to run all those computers. To run the air conditioner so the equipment doesn't cook itself to death. To pay for it, because most of them don't own their central office. To lease the space the equipment's in. To comply with the codes. This is, this is asininity. This is like saying, well, you know, if you take money out of the cash register, it doesn't matter because money's free inside the business. You know, as long as you take the money from the cash register to buy the staples, it doesn't really affect the bottom line of the business. I'm sorry, that just... That just doesn't work, okay? Um, the price is dropping by a huge percentage every year. Yes, it is. The cost to deliver high bandwidth services is dropping every year, which makes all of the problems that network neutrality is supposed to address less of a concern. ISPs have two big expenses, their end-user network plant and their transit costs for uplinks. They reduce those transit costs by reaching peering agreements with other networks and content providers. Exactly. And if government stays out of it, they'll continue to do that, Okay. Peering is just an agreement between two networks to exchange traffic. I agree completely, and we do not need the government to do that, and that peering agreement might be that someone who's providing additional consideration because they're getting the shallow end of the deal as for some other form of compensation, i.e. money, in order to do that, and if it was your business, you'd want the freedom to be able to do that too. Netflix offers free peering to any ISP that meets traffic thresholds. So the cost to the ISP is reduced to a port on a router and IX building. No, no, because Netflix doesn't have the type of infrastructure to exchange peering relationships with the ISP with. Netflix is not an ISP. They're a content provider. Verizon had the power to fix the issue at 535 by adding a few cross connects, but they pursue the new business model instead. That's Verizon's choice. And that's, it was not as simple as adding a few cross connects. Okay? Or they would have done it. ISPs used to charge their customers and pay for network and transit to deliver content to those customers. That's true. It doesn't refute my central argument at all. Verizon decided they wanted to charge the content providers as well. Netflix eventually caved and started paying Verizon to deliver their traffic. So? So? You, what you're telling me is the two giant corporations worked out the problem on their own. Okay, Netflix was an easy target because it's a third of the Internet. So yes, if you want to be a third of the Internet and you want me to deliver your services and you're going to put that level of burden on my network that I make my money on delivering content to my providers, yes, 
because you don't have enough peering to share with me. In other words, you don't have enough additional bandwidth of your own to offer back, because that's what peering means. I'm going to use some of yours right now. You use some of mine later, right? Then we're going to have to work something out here, okay? If the ISPs lose common carrier designation, they're free to arbitrarily impose such costs on other content providers. So what? So what? They can't do it arbitrarily right now without net neutrality because they are already designated as common carriers, so you don't need net neutrality to police that. Okay? The major ISPs are content providers. They are. That is a true statement. The major ISPs, in general, are content providers and highway delivery specialists. They deliver access and content. That's true. So they can leverage a nice vertical, e.g. make Hulu more competitive. That's a huge step backwards. No. If I provide access and content, and I do it at my expense, and it's all my business, then if I want to use that to make my service more competitive, i.e. triple play, I can make my your, your bill lower, because I can do your phone, internet, and cable, then that's perfectly acceptable in my opinion. The gross margin on home internet is huge. Comcast runs at 70%. Okay, that's fine. I'll concede that even though I'm, I didn't look it up to verify it. I'll concede that, though. Then someone needs to teach this guy Economics 101 that gross profit and net profit are very, very, very different things. You're looking at that piece, that vertical of, of, of consumer-provided uh, Internet service, but you're not looking at the total cost to actually run the infrastructure that allows them to deliver that. I guarantee you... I guarantee you that by the time we get down to a net profit, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10 to 15%. And that doesn't matter anyway. There's no, there's no law that says, well, you should only be able to make so much on your services. And why should there be? Okay, Those are publicly available numbers. Saying there's no money to improve service is stupid and wrong. I didn't say there was no money to improve service. I said if you force them to use money to improve service, they're going to pass it on to the consumer. That's true. That's not stupid or wrong. There is just no motive because there's so little competition and because buying Republican senators and running propaganda campaigns is cheaper. It's... It... <laughs> uh, in this situation, the cable companies and the ISPs have actually spent very little money in lobbying when you look at the total amount of lobbying money that's spent, and it probably is cheaper. I'll even concede that. But you know what? That's how the system works. If you want to worry about that, you need to worry about every single industry that exists out there. Okay? They miraculously invest in their networks in areas with more competition when Google Fiber comes to town. So what you're saying is that competition works. And the, the solution here isn't net neutrality, which actually squashes competition. It would be to further deregulate Internet service so that anybody anywhere could provide any type of Internet that they want to anybody. That's, that's what I get out of it. And I'll end with a few more specific call-outs. He says, at 110, our Internet is not fine. We've lost our leadership in the space. We're number 14 in average speech, which is much further back on in the pack on price. Only 26 million homes in the U.S. have fiber to the home available in 2015. That's pathetic. Okay, what is the purpose of fiber to the home? It's not for greater speeds. I know you think that because the TV told you, right? I'm talking to everybody now. Fiber doesn't mean faster. It can, but it doesn't. The only purpose of fiber to the home right now is future-proofing. So as more advanced systems come out, 
that we can run to the maximum capacity of those systems. Because right now, an RG11 piece of coax can run you more bandwidth to your house than you could ever possibly need. Um, at 225, the CERT has very little to do with anything he's talking about. It's an old building cable plant thing, argument from authority fallacy. Uh, he's talking about my RCDD. He's right. The RCDD has a limited impact on my understanding of outside plant technologies. But if you remember, I said that with the RCDD came the OSP certification, or outside plant certification, and land design certification. Both of those have everything to do with what we're talking about, okay? Everything to do with what we're talking about. And the point of the RCDD was you could not acquire at that time either of those certifications without doing RCDD first. So it was like being a doctor that's also a specialist in, I don't know, you know, hearing. And you can't just be a, a hearing specialist. You have to be a doctor first. Not that it's as complicated as being a doctor, but it's the same type of analogy. 8.30, a T1 cannot stream Netflix. 1.544 megabits when 4K streams are 18 megabits. That's ridiculous. Good thing T1s are ancient tech. Okay, first of all, T1s are not ancient tech. They're being used all over the place right now, and somebody better tell the T1 police, because I used to stream Netflix at my office in, in Frisco on a, on a T1 line all the time. And he's talking about 4K streams. How many people are streaming 4K video on Netflix? And the fact that you think you can stream 4K video uh, says a lot. Let's talk about T1. Let's not even talk about T1. Let's talk about this fallacy. Uh, and I'm going to let the rest. You can read the rest of the shit if you want to. Look it up on the Facebook page. But I just want to kind of put this whole thing in perspective and just end this crap from a debate standpoint. Okay? This belief that any of you have that you can go to Comcast and give them $49 a month and get a 60 megabit connection that's actually a 60 megabit connection is so far into fantasy land that it's unbelievable. It's so far into fantasy land that it's unbelievable. And here's why. To get close, to get three quarters of the way to a dedicated 60 megabit connection that actually gives you 60 megabits of actual bandwidth, you could go to something like an OC12. Okay, that's an optical connection 12. That would be fiber from your house all the way to the central office and through the back hall. That would give you a 45 megabit connection. Okay? 45. Not 60, about 45. Okay? It will cost you to get that connection. Do you want one? Do you want one? I mean, you'll never have problems streaming your video ever again. You'll be able to stream anything you want. 4K, they ever come out with 8K, it won't matter. If you have the equipment that'll run on your side, no problem. It's only going to cost you $40,000 to $60,000 a month. Not a year, a month. $40,000 to $60,000 a month. And there's buildings where they have those connections going into them, and they're paying that amount of money. They're paying that amount of money. If you could ever conceivably get a 60 megabit connection through a cable modem, or now they're talking about 100 megabits, right? Because <laughs> it's just because they're running basically a fast Ethernet connection, for God's sakes, all right? To a switch piece of switching gear that then parcels it up amongst the... I, I don't want to get too technical, right? Okay, but if you could get that, For 50, or even for business class, if you could get it for 200, who would pay 45 to $60,000 for that connection? People that actually need the bandwidth. This doesn't work the way you think it is. And even though this gentleman is more informed than most, this doesn't work the way you think it does. And in the end, here's the fundamental reality. Under Trump, the FCC is going to remove the small provisions of net neutrality that have been in place for two years and enforced for 18 months. They will go away and you will notice nothing will happen 
Because the big objection that I keep hearing is, well, just because there's only been these little issues with these big companies doesn't mean they couldn't come out and squash Joe's Internet or Joe's streaming video tomorrow. Here's the reality. If you're Joe's video, if you're Joe's video, and you're doing some kind of streaming video service, Comcast, Netflix, no one gives Verizon, no one, AT&T, no one gives a shit about you. If you have 20,000 customers, they don't give a shit about you. You're not a blip fart on their network. The day that Joe's video service, right, gets a phone call or an email or anything from Comcast or Verizon or, 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 or Spectrum or anybody that says we need to discuss your impact on our network, you can stop worrying about Joe because his, his private jet fuel and caviar budget exceeds your annual income. Okay? That's a fundamental reality. This will handle itself if we leave it alone. We've had almost 30 years of Internet service with the government out of it, and that's why it's so fantastic. And again, if you want, and I know I went longer than I said I would, but if you want government to enforce net neutrality, you are saying to the government, please regulate the Internet. I'm not going to bring this up again. And people can say whatever they want because for the next four years, it won't matter There's nothing that's going to be done about it. There's nothing that's going to be done about it. It will never get through Congress and the Senate. If it did, it will never get signed by Trump. It's not going to happen. So we'll punt it for the next four years and worry about other issues. On that, um, let's take a look at the next one. I'm going to play an audio from a video right now from Big Think. And Big Think's not like one person. They have lots of different people on there. Uh, I just saw one video from with Zach Galanophagus on it, kind of talking about some of the things I was talking about at the beginning of this uh, show today. But uh, it's about rethinking the 40-hour work week and universal basic income. So with that, here you go. Look, I think change is scary. I think there is no way around that. I think what is familiar is is easier for people. And, and not everybody wants disruption and innovation and entrepreneurship. Not everybody wants to have seven jobs. That sounds terrible to a lot of people. Um, I think the idea, the sort of assumption that everybody is an entrepreneur is a bit of a mistake. I think many people are willing to be entrepreneurs with given no other option. But a lot of those people would rather just have a job. Like, not everybody is a founder. That's okay. This is not some failure, right? Like, founders are sort of unique animals, right, in sort of our social system, social ecosystem. Um, but I, what I think it requires of us as individuals is this pace of change is unlikely to be slowed down in, in a way that is productive, right? It could be slowed down in ways that are super unproductive, like being isolationist and protectionist and trying to make a global economy smaller um, in ways that will ultimately hurt more people than it will help. I think there, there are ways of slowing down innovation, but I don't think any of them are actually good for people. I think the reality is we have to get better at teaching flexibility. We have to teach critical thinking and adaptability to students as part of how we're preparing people for the future. We also have to be willing, this is where leadership matters a lot, willing to be more ambitious for ourselves. We tend to think about progress in generational terms. I want my kids to be better off than I am. Well, why wait for your kids? 
Like, why not? If it's if it's easier and more effective to make something somewhere else, and we can take on a bigger problem. And I believe that the, we can do that. That we have the capacity to embrace something more ambitious for ourselves now in our lifetime, in a way that isn't terrifying, and in a way that isn't. It's it's about seeing these things as opportunities and addressing the anxiety of trying trying new things and embracing new things. And that requires leadership that's confidence inspiring and that speaks to the discomfort that we're in and that meets us at an emotional level uh, of leadership that. I think politicians are pretty scared of a lot of the time. Um, and I don't think it's just politicians. I think it's also business leaders. I think it's community leaders. I think this is a cultural shift in an attitude toward what success looks like and what work looks like. And it may be the case that, you know, we've moved, we're moving into this sort of post-industrial economy. We're sort of in this complicated shift, right? And they're, Industrial jobs are moving and changing, and you know value is no longer linearly correlated with work, right? So if in a in a typical industrial system, if I work more hours, I create more value in a relatively linear equation, right? Which is why an hourly wage makes sense. But in a world where one more hour of work might create 10x more value. But in the world we're currently in, all of that value goes to an investor, and none of it goes to me as the worker. Hourly wages make no sense. And it might be the case that if we did a better job sharing in that value creation and spreading the cost of disruption around more effectively, maybe we only need to work 30 hours a week. And maybe that is full employment. right? Maybe our definition of full employment is, needs to be revisited, just like a lot of our other assumptions. And maybe we don't need seven jobs. Maybe we just need to do a better job sharing the value we're creating, and that leaves more time to be parents. Like, I don't know that we need to take as a given the 40-hour work week. Most other countries don't and haven't for a long time. I think, look, I, I think this concept of shared success and collective progress leads us toward a conversation that invites the question of universal basic income. I'm... I think it's a really interesting idea. I, I'm not an expert in it, and I'm not convinced that it's the only answer. I think things like requiring companies to do things like profit sharing is part of the same conversation, right? That ultimately what universal basic income is about is that we are collectively creating value, and we should collectively share in that value. I believe in that 100%. I think that that we live in a community where accepting the suffering of any of us makes all of us poorer and makes all of us less well-off, right? And accepting that that is like the default part of the gradient should be unacceptable to us. Is the answer government like a minimum, a, gov a check from a government that creates a minimum layer? Maybe. That may be exactly the kind of public good that the government should create. The question is who gets it? And how and when and what are the cutoffs? And I think, which is not to say it's a bad idea, I just think it's a lot more complicated at the point of implementation than most people talk about. Um, of who qualifies? What if I make enough money? I mean, this is a similar conversation to welfare. Who qualifies? At what point does, you know, am I making enough money that I don't qualify for that? And does that create a valley or a cliff in my economic well-being and progress that 
creates problems for people, that people get stuck in this valley, right? Which is very true with especially welfare where you must be working to get to benefit from welfare. The work first mentality that started in the 80s means that you can't, like for instance, study while on welfare because you have to work full time. And so you can study at night, and I know, yes, you can go to go to work and you can study at the same time. But it creates incentives that create this weird valley in the middle of, of sort of the way welfare systems get, our welfare system gets executed in the United States. I think that's the kind of thing that we have to be really, really conscious and careful of with universal basic income. I think the concept that anybody, that we should accept that anybody, anybody living in poverty shouldn't be acceptable to us. There, are, we have, we have enough wealth and value and opportunity in this country for that not to be true. And I think accepting it as true is just us wimping out on a hard problem. Okay, I have to give a disclaimer that I always give when I talk about something like universal basic income. When you hear me frankly, logically, and reasonably discuss the concept as to what it might mean and whether or not I think it will happen, it is neither an endorsement nor a refutation of me about the fact. I am simply discussing it the way your weathermen might discuss whether or not you have to worry about a tornado. The fact that he tells you a tornado is coming does not mean that he wishes for one to destroy your home. He simply wants you to be aware of the fact that it could happen and there's a high probability and you should then act accordingly and do the best you can under the circumstances whether you, I, or the weathermen want the tornado or not. And I'm not saying UBI is a tornado, but it certainly can be. I want to start out with some things that I really liked about what this man said. Uh, number one, why wait for your kids? I love that. And he was talking about it in the standpoint of, I want my kids to have a better life than I do. Well, then why don't you try to make your life better today so that whatever better they have is even better than they're going to get, right? Well, why do we sit around and, like, to me, that sounds like, it sounds like most ideas start out so noble. And, and, and it, they, they are noble for the time that they are in, okay? So if you look at school, for example, Our education system's not broken, it's outdated. Our education system was built for a time when classrooms and schools were small, bureaucracy was low, and the things that a child needed to learn by the time they were 17, 18 years old were limited and fundamental. We now live in a time where bureaucracy is high, there is more opportunity and technology and niches and places to go with education than there's ever been in the history of humankind Some total, like if you took all of the things you could have done with education and technology from the year 500 B.C. up to 1950, all of that together doesn't equal what we have today in 2017. And we built this system, we built this system in the 1800s. The, the, the education system that we have today is perfectly fine for the 1800s. It ain't the 1800s no more. By the way, isn't it cool that like in just another two and a half years, we'll have a decade again that we can talk about, right? Those of you that are like as old as me or older, you remember like saying, hey, it's the 60s, hey, it's the 70s, hey, it's the 80s. Get up with the times, man, it's the 90s. We haven't been able to say that shit for 17 years. What do you say, it's the aughts, the teens? You don't ever hear anybody say that, right? So we're going to have our new decade to talk about the 20s. 
very soon. And the, and the, the system of education we're using is prior to the 1920s. This concept, I want my children to have it better than the way I had it, really originated, really originated in, in the, the, the years that the baby boomers were being boomed out. The baby boomers didn't originate it. The World War II generation that went through the Depression, they went through all this shit, they went through the horror of war. They were really that real genesis of that becoming a mainstream idea. So it's an idea from the 1950s. And not everything about the 1950s is outdated, and that's not a bad sentiment, but the world has changed. And we need to be thinking about how we can make things better for us right now. That's not selfish. That's called responsibility. See, selfish is uh, things should be better for us, and I want somebody to make it that way. right? Selfless was I want things to be better for my children than I have them, and I'm willing to sacrifice and, and accept my limit in what I do for myself so that my kids can have more. Well, how many kids were people having back then? Six, eight, and how many people worked? One family, you know, one one spouse working, four, five, six kids or more, and that just had to keep the corporate grind going. To be, like that's not the world we live in anymore. So we move from selfless instead of going from selfless to selfish. Selfish. How about responsible? I'm responsible for my happiness and to be the best father, mother, etc. that I can be and provide the best for my, my, my children, I should make the world a better place for me now. Not at their expense, but it's, it's up to me to do it. I love that kind of thinking. And that goes right in with what else he said, teach critical thinking. See, the thing we're not teaching children today is how to learn, which is a sin. Because it, even though I said like the system's not broken, it was perfectly adapted you know, for like the 1800s all the way up to the 1950s and 60s, and it was. And it wasn't even that bad in the 80s because there were still opportunities within those limited scopes of thinking. Um, but yeah, the, the world has changed. But the biggest thing is that back then you did learn how to learn to a large degree. And we learned how to learn because you had to. When they gave you a report to do, You had to go to a library and dig through all kinds of books, and they'd say, oh, you can only use two encyclopedias, and you need seven sources or some shit like that, and you had to do the Dewey Decimal thing. Remember all that stuff? Young people are like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Okay? So we had to do that. So even though the system was limited, it, 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 because of that very nature, it taught people how to learn. Today we can just look everything up. So we've kind of lost that skill set that happened accident I don't think it was intentional that skill set happened accidentally in the old educational paradigm today the reason it's a sin that we don't teach people how to learn there's never been a time where it's easier and learning is not just the see that that was more like the technical aspect of it I'll give you something to learn about and I'll tell you to go to these places and find it and then you technically had to navigate that to be able to learn where today if I do the same thing you just go to Google and look a bunch of shit up It's that simple. It's, it's, so you don't get the technical skill set. And the technical skill set starts to change the mind and makes you learn how to learn. So now we've lost that. But what we should be teaching now is the, the pattern recognition. How to identify things. How to identify what you're interested in. And how to dig deeper into that. And how to build a case for it. And how to ex expand upon it. Because there's never been a better time for that. So I think these, those are completely, totally awesome, valid points. Now, universal basic income. I wanted to revisit this because I want to go on record with what I think about it as a thing. Not whether we should do it or not, as a thing into itself. And be 
be patient when I tell you what it could be because all the things you're going to scream at me through your speaker while I'm talking to you are the things I'm going to say when I say, but this is what it would be. Okay, What it could be is the most liberating thing to humanity in all history. If human beings could have enough of a monetary instrument to provide for their most basic needs, not a comfortable life, but a manageable life, with no strings or conditions on it other than would be placed on any other asset. And what I mean by that is there's no way that you could have your, your, your universal basic income taken away from you. No matter how much money you make, you still get your basic, right? No matter how much money you don't make, you still get your basic. And you don't get more, and you don't get less. If you commit a crime, you don't get it taken away. Now, if there's restitution to a victim, then it can be paid for out of there, but it doesn't go away. And once the restitution is made, you resume getting it. If it was completely conditionless, and you had an economic system that was designed for it, which is not what we have, so you built a system, and yes, it could be a blockchain system or it could be a completely new system, a system of debt-free monetary instrument that was specifically designed to provide that base level of income. You wouldn't even have to raise most of it through direct taxation. It could actually be generated in the economy by economic activity. It absolutely could work. And if you did that, and every person had, and it doesn't even matter what the number is because it wouldn't be dollars. It could be you know, space credits or bit U.S. coins or whatever. It doesn't matter. And the, the, you know how much it buys is what matters. But let's say that it bought what basically $2,000 a month buys today. And it was adjusted accordingly, so no matter what number you put on it, that basically you had access to what a person with a $24,000 income would have today. That's actually not a, a, a horrible income. It's not a great one, but there's a lot of people out there living on less right now. And that's what you had. And you said there is no welfare. There is no anything. There is no disability payments. There is Because you get that. You get that $2,000 equivalency every month, no matter who you are, and then you go out and do whatever is the best you can with it. And if you think a person who is in a bad way deserves more, you can do whatever you want to help them. And we did that. You would end up with a society where nobody really worried about whether they were going to eat tomorrow. I think crime would plummet if you got rid of, if you did that and got rid of victimless crimes. So you didn't have any crimes prohibiting things like drug possession and drug use and growing pot and all that shit, right? You said, you know what, you want to use, but nobody's going to pay for you. If you're an addict, I hope you can find a clinic that'll take your two k a month to take care of your shit, or you can find somebody willing to invest in you to help you. If you did that, you would end up with a society completely freed of con direct concern for their tomorrow. And I think that a huge portion of that society would unleash incredible creative potential. However, here's the other. I know you're screaming, socialism, but it's not social. That's not socialism. What I just described is not socialism. It is a recognition that an individual, by existing, is worthy of some level of basic food and housing, shelter, and opportunity. Now, again... You'd actually have to build an economic model to make it work, which we don't have. But if our government does this, it will not look anything like that. 
They will say, well, it's up to, you know, once you make over a certain amount of money, you lose it. Well, that's just dumb. That's a lot how welfare works today. Um, by the way, when he was talking about work for welfare, that doesn't exist. I don't know where the hell he got that, but right now, like, welfare is designed to prevent you from working. So that's a problem. But it would work like that. Like, well, once you make $100,000, why do you need your 24 anymore? Because if it's universally something that we all should have, then you should have it whether you're a billionaire or a millionaire or you don't do anything else. But they, we wouldn't have that. And they would put the conditions on it. It would start out with things that, like, you would just nod your head and agree with really easy because you wouldn't think it through. Well, if you commit a felony, you should lose it. Well, wait a minute. So the guy commits a felony, goes to prison, gets out, he's paid his debt to society, now he can't get a job and he has no income. Well, that's, that's gonna help recidivism, won't it? No, no, he's gonna, like, so like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. That'd be like saying, well, once you commit a felony, you don't get food anymore. If you develop this system that way. And, and it would be like the things that people would like, well, if you're a child molester, you shouldn't get it. Well, I, You know, I think if you're a child molester, you should get a dirt nap. But if, if we're going to set you free in society again, and there's something that society generally views as a base level of, of, of income, then you should have that. Or we don't let you free anymore, one or the other. We don't take it away, because now you have to go find a job like, I don't know, working in a daycare center, which is the last place you should be. Right? So what would, it would start like that, though. The things like you would never argue with. Because that's what government always does. And it would get down to, well, you know, this guy didn't pay his taxes exactly right. We'll take away his... Oh, this person here was found using drugs. We'll take away their... See? And it'll just, it'll just cascade like that to where government has this master switch that they can just turn off any time. And what I think UBI will be when, it's, when it is implemented will become the greatest control mechanism of humanity by the elite ever, and it's why I'm totally opposed to it, period, because I don't believe it's possible under our current system in the way that I described in the first place. As an idealist, I think the first model makes a lot of sense. And I think it makes a lot more sense as a private idea than a public service. That through you know basically new virtual nation modern tribalism, that you could actually build systems on virtual currencies that actually did this and at least test it first before you go roll it out on a whole country or a state or a freaking region of the world and you're not sure that it really works. Because there's a lot of shit that can be made to sound really good in a book, Marxism, uh, until you actually try to implement it and it fails. So the whole thing could fail even if you did it the way I said it could fail. So these types of radical shifts need to be done very, very tentatively. Well, like you have to test this, and, and you know, doing it as a government on like a thousand people doesn't really help. And most of those, those, those pilot programs of people that you know, the, the young social justice warriors scream around the internet, showing people. When you read into them, a lot of them actually are linked into criminal, um, basically reducing criminal activity, saying we'll give you your money, but you have to stay like a good boy. And again, that's just where you start out when you want to completely control how society works. You know, if you are anti-government, well, you don't deserve the fruit of your government's income, so you don't get it anymore. That type of thing. That's where I think we would go with it. And that's where I think it will go. And I think it will happen. And I think most of us will see some version of it in our lifetimes. And as for if we, if we make it something like, well, who gets it, and it's not everybody gets it, then it's what we have now. It would just be a, a more straightforward version of welfare. 
That's all that it would be. Because there's a million social programs that already dole out billions of dollars. And here's the biggest problem with these, these programs. And it's why I think, if you could do it right, UBI has some merit. Right now, if you hired private companies and said, we'll give you uh, $200 million. And all you have to do is give away $100 million of it to people that need it in our country. That You, know, you figure your own criteria out, but you get to keep half of it. We'd be ahead. Right now, of every dollar that goes to our government, only two to three dollars, depending on the department, actually gets to the mission at hand. Most of it is eaten by our own internal bureaucracy. I mean, you'd literally be better off hiring freaking the, the devil himself, Monsanto, to distribute our annual taxpayer budget under the condition that they give away half of it, because they would, because they wouldn't want to lose the other half, and more money would get to people that actually need it. So streamlining this entire bureaucracy, to me, makes sense. But again, you know what will happen. We never streamline bureaucracy. We always make it bigger. But that's just, that's just the way that it always ends up being. Now, I think the idea here that I think is the most interesting and the most doable and the most practical is shifting to an economy where we start looking at something like a 30-hour or 25-hour work week as a full-time job. And I know some of you will go, that just, I mean, how could that, I, I, I want to put you into a position now, though, and I want you to be open a little bit. Imagine that you lived at the time when the average person worked an 80-hour week. That was average. And concepts like a 40-hour work week and overtime were introduced by people like Henry Ford, by the way, before unions did it, just for not, for not revising history. Um... Don't you think people said, well, well, we'll never have enough productivity that way, everybody's going to go broke, etc. And now it's just seen as like an obvious thing. And I know a lot of you, like me, are, when people talk about a 40-hour week, go, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And this goes long before I started the Survival Podcast. You know, I mean, my average work week for the majority of my adult life has been 60 hours a week. And that's just because I want more. But do I have a more fulfilling personal life than the person who's figured out how to do a 30-hour work week and sticks to it. On some levels, I'm going to say no. Now, I have a lot of stuff, and I have a lot of things, and I have a lot of freedoms in my life that they don't, that they'll point to and say it's not fair. I think it's completely fair. You've chosen to have less freedom from a standpoint of making a decision. Like, maybe you have more time, but you can't necessarily just get on a plane and fly first class to, to the beach. And I can. Even though I have less, less time in my life to do it, when I want to, I can. And you've made one set of decisions that's put you there, and I've made another set of decisions that's put me here. But I do think that we're getting to a point where like, that is one way to address this onslaught of technology. If humans work less for the same amount of money, but produce the same because their productivity goes up. The problem is... There's no longer, like he said, there's no longer a direct correlation. So let's say that you know my department is a department of only five people. And because of technological innovations, our output goes up tenfold. But that means that they only need one of us. 
so I'm not, even if I'm the one that's left, I'm not necessarily contributing to that tenfold increase in any way. And it doesn't really help the other four people. They say, well, Jack, you know what? You can work 20 hours a week instead of 40 now. We'll pay you the same. Those other four people are still out of a job. Or if it's half the department, those other two and a half people are out of a job. And we'll just round it up to three. And this is the world we're headed for. We're headed for a world war for all this talk of new jobs and new innovation and new training and new skills. For every one of those jobs created, we're going to be losing five, six, ten. Think about going to war and you have a ten to one negative kill ratio against the enemy. For every one of them that they, you kill, they kill ten of yours and you have somewhere approximately similar size from a man count, head count sized forces. How long can you sustain that war, even if every man that you have is willing to die for the cause? The answer is not very long. In fact, the more the war becomes intensified, the faster it ramps up, the quicker your inevitable defeat is realized. Even if you're willing to fight to the last man. It just comes down to the fact that if they you have 100,000 apiece, they're going to lose 10, you're going to lose every single one. And, and in war, at least there's fear no matter how much courage any man claims to ha have, there's a point where people quit, where people realize it. With technology, technology doesn't give a shit. It just keeps marching. So we're going to have to do something. And, and, and I have not proposed that I know the something to do. And that's why I kind of like this guy, even though I don't completely agree with him, because he's saying the same thing. And this is the type, if you want to have an open, honest discourse between left and right in the false dichotomy, or conservative and liberal in the false dichotomy, or between any two positions, the only way you can generally do that is for people to admit their limitations as to what they know and what will work, and admit what th th there's some things that no one knows. Then you can generally have a pretty open discussion, even if you're somewhat opposed to each other's internal ideology and general ideology. Just some things to think about. I'd like to know more about what you guys think about what's coming from a standpoint of technology and automation and you, you know the potential for universal basic income, shortened work weeks and things like that. You know because that may be another option. What? What? I mean, see, this is the thing. We think it's such absolutes anymore. What if the idea was that there's at least I don't know ten hours of work that every person could do within a country like ours, no matter what it is. You know, fixing playground equipment, picking up garbage. Like, like if, if you really looked for things for people to be able to do, there's tons of things to be done. And in order to get your UBI, you had to do those 10, 15, 20 hours of work. And then universal basic income becomes something that's more of a option. In other words, if you say, well, yeah, you know, because you know what I would say? Eh, keep it. Keep it. I don't want it. I don't want it. Well, how does that impact the disabled law? If you're disabled, you just get yours. You know, But you can do something. Trust me. Hey, I mean, I, I went and took my boat to Cabela's this, this weekend, and I dropped it off to get some electronics installed in it. And the gentleman that's running the entire maintenance department for Cabela's in Fort Worth which is a huge job. He's not doing the work on the boats, and so he's running the entire management of that, the inventory control, who works on what when, he's, and he's over maintenance and sales and service. He's in a wheelchair. 
So don't tell me you can't because you're disabled. See, like if there was something for you to do, you could and you'd be better off if you did something. So I, I think that maybe there's some way in all of that that we could come up with a solution. I just don't believe our government will in any way that's going to be good for humanity. I think that we're sliding into potentially what could be the most liberating time in history, but it has the potential and the greater potential to become the most oppressive thing we've ever seen. But it might look really shiny and pretty on the surface. That the people that are the most enslaved by this system will believe themselves the most to be free, kind of like it is now, but worse. But more but worse. And think of it, but without government, how would we get our free money? If you think it's hard to argue against the state when the state is providing poorly constructed roads and schools with 50% failure rates, how are you going to argue against the state that's providing completely free money in the mind of the person that's getting it? So it's it's something I'm deeply concerned about long term. Let's take another one. Okay, I got tons of emails about this massive hack um, that happened to Ethereum. And this is the important part, multi-signature wallets. So let's talk about what an Ethereum multi-signature wallet is. Generally, these are used as some sort of component to like a smart contract or company founding or something like that. And what it does is, let's say, you and me and Bob are the heads of this entity that we'll call Spiritopia Coin, right? And we have some widget that, that we attach to the coin. It doesn't matter, right? But we, we have this, and we're going to go out and we're going to raise funds for Spiritopia Inc. And um, we agree that we're going to sell our tokens for X amount of Ethereum per token, and we issue those tokens or their mind or however we decide to deploy them And then some of the money spent on them goes directly into the company for development. Some may be reserved. Or some may be reserved for work in the company. Or some may be reserved to us, the founders. But because we might set certain requirements for those funds to be released. In other words, once the development team gets to here, more money will go into development. But until it's going to be held here. And for me and, and you and Tom to take some of our money out of our founder's reserve and actually spend it on things like a new house. There's certain things that we maybe have to do or the company has to do or the, the Dow has to do before we're allowed to take that money out. Or we all have to agree that we can take out certain money at certain timelines, and if one objects or two objects, we can't. So we create what's called a multi-signature wallet. And, and if you think about the way that you use cryptocurrency, you have a public key and a private key. A private key is like a really long password is the best way to think about it. And to move that money anywhere or convert it to any other thing or send it or what have you, you have to have both of those keys. Well, what a multi-sig wallet does, it has, let's say in our instance with you, me, and Tom, you, me, and Tom, all three of us have a private key. And to do things with that money, that Ethereum in this case, it needs all three of our private keys. This hack did not affect Ethereum directly, or even the applications directly. It was a, 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 like a piece of technology built as an add-on. Think of it like a plug-in for your browser for multi-sig wallets that had an, a security exploit. Okay? And what happened was Black Hat, bad guy hackers, found out about it and started looking for multi-sig wallets on the, on the Ethereum blockchain and found them and managed to suck $30 million worth of Ethereum out. Now, 
Here's why this is actually a good case for why cryptocurrency has the ability to do more for humanity than centralized currency, i.e. dollars, central banks, etc., ever could. The people that built the technology, and I'm not going to get all the technical specifics here. I'm going to keep it very high level. Okay, You can look up the articles if you want to. I'm not even going to post a link to it. This is, this is the basics of what happened. Like the white hat hackers, the guys that are like the good guy hackers, find out about the exploit, and they start looking for every multi-sig wallet they can find, and they find $150 million worth of Ethereum that's vulnerable. And before the black hat guys can get to it, the white hat guys steal, okay, as in borrow, all $150 million worth of Ethereum, contact the owners and say, let's get your shit straight, we'll send you your money back. When have you ever heard about something like that happening in a bank fraud case or something like that? Where have you ever heard of anything approaching that? I mean, if you get $200 stolen from your credit card, the police don't even want to take a report about it. They don't even care if it's under a thousand bucks. And when a major bank fraud thing happens, well, it's covered by FDIC. Who actually fixes it? How long does it take? In this case, in an open source environment, as soon as the vulnerability was spotted, the good guys were proactive faster than the bad guys and saved the majority of the losses. Here's the other thing. Yeah, they have that $30 million worth of Ethereum. They transferred it to a place where they could exchange it for other currencies or cash. And they did get some out, but they've already been banned from that exchange. Now they're sitting on a bunch of Ethereum, and no one knows who they are. But the address that that Ethereum is in is being watched by every single network and good guy hacker out there. And whenever they move it, they know they're going to create a chain of custody as to where it goes to. And it's going to be very difficult for them to effectively pull off the rest of this theft. And it also gives people time to start trying to figure out who they are. They may or may not. But the bleeding was stopped. And good guys... Now think of this. They rushed in and stole $150 million. How tempted would you be? If you had that kind of power to take some. But no. You have it all back. Unbelievable. But without government, who would protect us? But you can't always rely that somebody would do that. Yeah, but... This seems like, would government do this? It's not the kind of thing I see government doing. So the big takeaways here are, number one, the, 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 the flaw wasn't in Ethereum itself. It was in a, like a piece of add-on technology. Two, once it was discovered, the people that built that add-on said, here's how to fix it. The good guys went to work and interfered with the bad guys' nefarious activities. And now, the other good guys that ran the technology are getting their money back. And it wasn't like the good guy hackers said, you know what, well, we want 10% for doing this. Yeah, just take it back. Just take it all back. The other thing is, because I saw people flipping their shit about this, I told you they could hack Bitcoin. Number one, didn't have nothing to do with Bitcoin, completely different blockchain. But the big thing is, this does not affect... 99.9% of people holding Ethereum. Because only a tiny percentage of total Ethereum is sitting in a multi-sig wallet. It's a very specific application. And then only a thread of that is sitting in a, a, a multi-sig wallet using this specific piece of technology with the flaw in it. 
Now, let me tell you another thing. What if somebody builds a piece of technology and builds the bug into it on purpose so that they can steal from people? What do you think these white hat hackers would do because you would know who they are then? I think they'd melt their network from the earth. This is an example of the private market doing it better than the public market ever has, in, in my knowledge. If you can show me anything that the state has done to approach the rapid response and the justice provided in this situation at no expense to anybody, go ahead. I'm listening. Let's take another one. So next one, this is like totally different. We'll have some variety in today's show finally. Uh, strawberry plants. Uh, this comes from John. John says, TSPC. Jack, you jerk. I took your advice and I've been feeding my small, tiny, little strawberry plants with liquid kelp and garret juice, and now they're banging. What do I do with the runners? Do I just bury them and cut them off the main plant or cut them and plant them? Thanks for all you do, John in Northern California. Well, you can do either or, or both, but you're going to get your best results if you root them before you cut them. So let's talk about what's going on. So strawberry plants develop from a root crown. Sometimes people call it a chrome system. And as they develop, at least runner strawberries will send out little vines. And on the end of those little vines will appear something that is commonly called a sister plant. And that little sister plant will start to grow. It will make soil contact, and for a period of time, its big sister is providing it energy through its roots, and eventually, as it touches the ground, it will root, and it will begin to grow. And as it gets to a point where it doesn't need energy from the big sister anymore, they become equal sisters, That, that vine just kind of gets hard and rots away. It just goes away. It just isn't there anymore. It doesn't do anything anymore. And then it will send out its own new vines. And the process repeats itself. And this is how strawberries self-propagate. Now, to get a higher percentage of them to root, the best thing to do is scrape away a little dirt and bury it a little bit and water it in. And keep it moist for a few days until you start to see some level of rooting activity. And then it'll pretty much take care of itself. And that way you can keep propagating. And this is good because individual strawberry plants don't live forever. What you're talking about here is basically natural cloning. The plant is cloning itself. Each sister plant is going to be genetically identical to the plant that cloned it. All right? Now, what the difference is, is its, its genetic age is much lower. If a five-year-old plant shoots out a clone today then the clone is a, is, is a brand-new baby. Even when it's a full-grown plant, it's like six months old. It's six months old. And this plant over here is five years old. Strawberry plants die. They're a perennial, but they don't live forever. They have a finite life. So this is the plant's way of regenerating itself. Because of the way nature works, it produces a healthy system, anyway. We'll produce way more clones that are needed for, for basic le base-level reproduction. Why? Because a lot of them won't root. And animals will come through and dig shit up and stuff like that, right? So they, just like a, a, a you know, a, a single uh, seed pot on some plants might produce a thousand seeds because they need one to take, the strawberry plant maybe produces eight or ten or twelve, or I've seen more than that clones a year once it's well established so that, that one of them has a pretty good chance of making soil contact and reproducing itself. So if we're taking an active role here, we'd certainly have a surplus, Now, my opinion is the best way to use that surplus if you want to plant it elsewhere is you get your, you're basically going to do a, a form of air budding, but it's much easier than most air budding. And what we're going to do is we'll take a small flower pot, we'll fill it with a good soil, 
and we'll put that sister plant in there, and we can mulch it. And probably the best way to mulch that is to take either something like saran wrap or aluminum foil or any type of a tape and cover it, something that's water, it lets water in, though, so you can easily soak it down to keep it wet for a few days. Or if you live in a pretty wet climate or you have automatic sprinklers or something like that set up or you water every day anyway, you just set it in the pot. You might even dig a little bit of a hole and put the pot into the ground a bit to help it keep from drying out. And you put your sister plant in there. Once you kind of check and it's well-rooted, then you cut your vine off and you take that pot. You can grow it out in that pot. You can pot it into a larger pot or you can plant it to a second area. In my experience, if you just cut the sister plant off before it's rooted and plant it, you get pretty sporadic and pretty inconsistent and pretty low rooting results. The other option, if you have really good soft soil, bury your sister plant, wait till it starts to form some roots, cut it off, dig it up, and move it. And that's probably the simplest way. It all depends on what the soil's like. If you're growing them in a bed with good soil, that's the easiest thing. If you're doing containers, then it's really much easier to use like the small flower pot method or something like that. Um, but that, that's, that's what you do with them. And, of course, you can sell them. That's, that's another thing you can do with them. You, know, you can't grow steak or hamburger meat, but you might be able to sell enough uh, strawberry plants to friends and neighbors to buy a few steaks this year. And that's like growing steaks. We think differently, we get into the agora state of mind. That's, that's some of the things you can do with them. But that's, that's what I'd recommend you do, one of those techniques. I would not recommend just cutting them off and then trying to root them you know, kind of from scratch because your, your effectiveness will be much lower. Uh, let's move on and take another one. The next one I'm calling the importance of procedures and protocols. And um, here we go. Uh, Eric says, Hi, Jack. I just wanted to drop a line about the importance of conducting pre-mission check and re reviewing, the, re reviewing trailer TTPs. There's an old acronym. If I remember right, that an acronym is Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures. Okay, so uh, I want to drop you a line about pre-mission checks and reviewing trailer tract tactical... Um, oh, man. Tactics... Wow. <laughs> Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures. Okay. Um, this is like PCS'd. That means he left uh, from Fort Lewis to Maryland. Um, this he changed duty stations from one military uh, station to the next. Last week, he was pulling a trailer with about 3,000 pounds of our household goods. Before loading up the trailer, I reviewed the safety procedures and loading instructions, even though I've pulled trailers for the past 20-plus years. The day we left, I was about two hours into the drive when I hit one of those 7-foot-by-20-foot patches of potholes on a major interstate about three to four inches below grade. Dislodging the trailer coupler, leave only the safety chains holding the trailer to my truck. My gut reaction was to slam on the brakes, but in that split second, I remembered that you're supposed to ease off the brake and slowly decelerate off the road. I got onto the shoulder safely and was able to use my jack to lift the trailer tongue and rehitch the trailer. If I had not reviewed the detached trailer TTP or if the safety chains had not been secured properly, it would have been a disaster. Yes, because if the trailer unhinges, and you immediately hit the brakes, the trailer's forward momentum carries the trailer up into and under your truck. And I will admit that we recently had a very similar thing happen to us. And the person that was with me is probably listening 
and gets the blame for the, the hooking up. But we'll never get it again because we're going to have a procedure so that we don't have to implement said protocol of pulling off slowly. And I wanted to, because I've talked about this before, I wanted to reiterate that with you, procedure and protocol. Procedure is how you do something. A protocol is implemented at the time that there's a change in circumstances, is one way that I explain it. So the procedure is you hook the trailer up, you inspect it, you put the chains on, you make sure your lights are plugged in, you check to make sure it's connected well, you lock down the trailer tongue in some way, all of that good stuff. And then, But if that fails, the protocol for the trailer dropping is slowly decelerating and moving off the road as you drag the trailer with you because that's better than the alternative. Right, So that's separation between procedure and protocol there. So what happened to me that sounds so much like this recently is we took the new boat out to the lake, and uh, I backed it up, and my co-pilot helped me back it up, got us lined up, and dropped the trailer on there and latched it on. Didn't quite get it latched on right. We drove all the way to the lake. We forgot the boat keys, implementing a new procedure. The boat keys now live in the truck and never leave the truck because the boat will never get to the lake without the truck. So we had to come back, got the boat keys, went back again. But the boat in the lake had a great day on the lake all day long, or half a day basically on the lake. Decided we want to come home. Put the boat on the trailer. When we pulled out of the park, they have one of those things with the, you know, like don't back up with the things that will flatten your tires. We hit that and made a big bounce. And it didn't sound quite right. We looked back and everything looked okay. And right at the place you pulled, fortunately, right at the place where you pull out, of the park that we used the boat ramp of, we had another pretty good bump, and the trailer went plump and hit the ground. Now, it wasn't that big a deal because we were barely moving, and it was laying on the ground, and we had a big piece of 2x6 in the pack, and my partner stuck the 2x6 under the tongue of the trailer and lifted like a lever, and that was enough not to get it on the truck, but for me to put the trailer leg down, the crank down, and then crank it up, put it right back on the truck, and go back down the road. But you can bet now there will be a new procedure. And that procedure will be that when we hook the truck up, that both of us check it. And we check specifically to make sure the latch is good and that the lock is on the latch. Because in our exuberance of rushing through this, I'll admit my own ass clownery, we got home and the pin that slides through and actually locks the trailer lock that was in it the first time was sitting on the bumper and made the whole ride home sitting on the bumper. <laughs> which shows you that anybody can screw up. And that's why I think reviewing your procedures and protocols frequently in all walks of life is a good idea. And also, you know, keeping that, that mentality of what are my tools, how do I solve the problem? Because we had a great floor jack. In the tool, my, you know, I have a big toolbox and the Stephen Harris battery back backup system in the toolbox of my truck. Beautiful floor jack. I don't believe in bumper jacks other than for situations where the only thing that will work Uh, for big vehicles. You go and you get yourself a nice, small, compact floor jack. It's much safer. For, so I had a beautiful one of those sitting in a toolbox. Problem was the day before I misplaced my truck keys. Toolbox was locked and I was using, I just took the truck keys. I didn't have, couldn't get into the jack. Yeah, I wasn't very prepared. But yet we used the tools that we had and we fixed the problem in about five minutes. Should have took six and put the, uh, the latch pin in. But, uh, everything worked out. But, Yeah, those are two cases that sound eerily similar uh, that happened, I guess, a week apart from each other. So, Eric, thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, next one is on insect infestations um, on your property. Dean says, hijack are insect infestations a sign of deficiency or something out of balance in the garden? 
Background, for at least two years, I have had hundreds if not thousands of Japanese beetles attack my garden and some trees. They eat the plants that suit their palate down to the twig. Some plants, such as tomatoes and pears, they don't even seem to land on, but my grapes, apples, almonds, plum, peach trees and are a dinner bell for these pests. I've tried neem oil and other natural bug killers, but they didn't work, so I ended up putting liquid seven dust on them. I never saw them the first three years I was here, but for the last two years, their numbers are legion. I don't want to keep using seven dust and wonder if there's an underlying cause for the Japanese beetle to be so prevalent, and do you have a better, more natural beetle killer than seven dust or other methodologies to treat an invasion? Thank you, Dean. Okay, let me see if I can help you with this. Here's some natural and relatively safe insecticides that you can try and, and, and other treatments. Uh, one is called Surround. And um, Gardens Alive sells all of these. I'll put a link, a lookup page where you can get all of these and take a look at them in one place. Um, but it, it's a pretty good broad spectrum protectorant that controls aphids and Japanese beetles, leaf hoppers, crickets, thrips, and things like that. What I don't like about it is, you know, some of those are not necessarily the worst things to have in your ecosystem. Uh, then there's beetle juice, BT for ornamental and vegetable pests. It's a BT, but it's designed to control adult beetles, which most other BT products don't, which is a bacterium. Uh, then you can use maybe nematodes, um, and beneficial nematodes in your soil understand the Japanese beetle completes its life cycle in multiple stages. It starts out as an egg. The egg hatches into a grub. The grub goes into the ground, and it eats a lot of you know root matter and things like that in the ground. It then goes into a pupa, and then it hatches and flies out of the ground. So if we kill it when it's a grub, which beneficial nematodes will, it, it is somewhat effective in reducing the total beetle population. Um, the next one is a product called um, Piola, P-Y-O-L-A. And Piola is pretty much an on-contact killer with uh, many insects, but it's safe. You can you can use it the day you harvest, and it's still safe for human consumption. Um, you can set Japanese beetle traps is another option that you have there. And there's also BT products you can use for your lawn, uh, which, again, will destroy the pupa or the uh, larva prior to them hatching and coming out of the ground. Here's the problem with the BT in the ground, you know, killing the grubs approach. There's there's no guarantee. In fact, it's probably not the case that these beetles are reproducing on your property. They fly. And this is where we have to maybe lose a little bit of the nirvana approach to permaculture. The nirvana approach to permaculture is that if we just balance all the things in the ecosystem, nature will take care of itself and it will work. And it does work at times, and that's good and that's bad. It's bad because people see it work for somebody and say, well, it should work for me too. Well, here's, here's the issue with that. You only control balancing the ecosystem on the piece of land that you control, and you're surrounded by millions of acres that don't. And you also might be the only person in the area growing things like grapes. Japanese beetles love grapevines. Trust me, I know. We had a huge, um, huge uh, grapevine of Concord grapes at the back of my grandfather's property, and there was always Japanese beetles on it. So that brings you to the other control. I used to go out there in the summer every day, And he would give me like 50 cents if I came back with a big jar of them with a jar full of soapy water. And I just grab beetles and throw them in there. Um, there was only one bird that we ever saw that killed them. But boy, did it kill them a lot. And I don't know if this bird's scientific name. I don't know if there's another name for it. But we called them a Jenny Wren. And they're, I mean, little bitty bird. They're low, like maybe 
twice the size of a hummingbird, which is smaller than you think it is when you actually see one. Like I found a dead one one time, and I was surprised because they look kind of big. They look tiny, but they look bigger than they are because of the way their wings are moving and all. When you see one laying, you're like, oh, my God, that's tiny. Um, so they're maybe twice the size of a hummingbird. And they would go grab them one at a time. They'd take them down to the driveway that we had, and you'd see them beating the hell out of them. And you'd go down there at the end of the day, and there would be hundreds of their wings laying there. Uh, you know, and a couple dozen of these birds would wipe out a couple hundred of these beetles a day. And so my grandfather found out the dimensions that were most desirable for Jenny Wrens. And he built little boxes, little birdhouse boxes. He had them on every pole for the, like the, uh, the clothesline and he had them in the trees. And we had like 20 Jenny Wren boxes on like a half acre of ground. And most of them ended up with a Jenny Wren pair in them. And that was pretty effective as well. So that's another natural control. But, I mean, the bigger issue is you can have all of this unbalanced system around you, and they could be creating perfect breeding environments for these beetles. And then you're creating the food of choice for them. If you look at what you're saying, like some of your plants, they don't trust them at all because they don't like them. That's why. The reason they're not touching your tomato plants, if you notice, not a lot of things eat a tomato plant. That big green worm, that hornworm, they call them a tobacco worm, right? He eats it. You know why? That worm's adapted to eat a nightshade. And you know why it eats your tomato? Because it takes up the toxin of that nightshade, because tomatoes are a nightshade. Remember, a green part of a tomato is poisonous. There was a time when people thought that the red tomato and the orange tomato and yellow, they always thought they were poisonous unless you cooked them. Thomas Jefferson writes in, in, in a, a garden book, right, uh, which is like a... Like a, 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 a not a novel, a sort of like a journal of his gardening activities. He writes in there of a guy who wanted to prove that tomatoes wouldn't kill you, and nobody believed you believed him at the time, right? Turn of the century type thing, and uh, so he he announced with like pamphlets in town that he was going to eat a basket of tomatoes at you know center of town at like noon on a Wednesday or something like that, and like like a hundred people showed up. And it's kind of sick because they were, they expected him to die. So he ate the tomatoes and he was fine. And it kind of got through, hey, these really aren't poisonous. So that, that, that hornworm eats that tomato so that nothing will eat it. And of course, only those little trichana wasps, trichajama wasps, and their larvae are the only, one of the few things that can actually eat that. So there is this adaptation in nature of these different species that exist to control the population of others. But we've put it out of whack. And I think that we are doing ourselves a disservice if we really think just by balancing all of the things on our property that we can eliminate all of our pest problems because we can't. And sometimes you might have to take a heroic uh, measure. If you're only using the liquid seven dust on the plants that are attacked by the beetles only, and you're only using it at the time of year when they're a problem, and you're only using it so long as they are a problem, and if it works, I'm not going to fault you for it, I'd prefer that you find a method that works that doesn't require a toxin like seven dust. But I'll tell you what, on my grandfather's property, he used seven dust. Old school seven dust, too. And it did work. He also didn't use it haphazardly and everywhere. He was practicing, like, pseudo-permaculture. There's a problem there. I'm going to spot applicate this insecticide there. And I have to use it and I have to, you know, wash it off and I can't use it again this long before harvest. But he did those things. Because he was an old, you know, he was an old generation. That's how they, it worked. We do it. Right? 
I mean, you're talking World War II generation. These guys got sprayed with DDT and shit, right? So, you know, a little seven dust here on the grapevine wasn't something that worried him too much. And, you know, we weren't all falling over dying of cancer either. I think we've become a little too sensitive to trying to do everything 100% naturally. I think, the, the, like, the first goal should be 100% naturally, and then it should be as little as possible of any other thing, because if we start down that path too far, it always leads to the same place. You become completely dependent on it. Everything ends up out of whack. But what good is a, is a grapevine that's eaten down to the nubs and produces nothing? So you have to make a decision. Either I'm not going to grow grapes, or I'm going to address this problem. But I do think we need to give ourselves a little bit of a pass. You know, I've seen people, like, I don't understand. I'm doing everything. The soil's perfect and this and that, and I still have pest problems. And they have, like, you know, a tenth of an acre lot in suburbia. You're surrounded by 800,000 asshats spraying true green chemlon crap on their property. And you have the only real abundance here, so any pest is drawn like a magnet. Our place in Arkansas, we did really good with it, but we had a lot of pest pressure. Why? Because in August, when the whole mountain was brown, we had a half acre of beaming green, booming everything. Put wires up with electrical power through them and tin foil and peanut butter on them to electrocute the deer because they were like, it's, it's, the only, it's the only game in town. So understand that sometimes in our exuberance to create these oases, we can create an attraction point to the unbalance around us. And give yourself a little bit of freedom to do what you have to do when you have to do it to get through those acute situations and keep trying to make it better and build it better. And eventually, you know, you'll find a way to minimize or completely eliminate those things. But if you have to use it as a crutch to survive a situation, I'm not going to fault you for it. So this next one uh, came to me from tons of you. This has been all over the place. Um, I've seen it on Facebook. I think it might be taken a little out of context, but the point is germane. I wanted to give the the most fair version of the state side of it possible, even though I don't like the state. But But the concept is that in Toronto, there's a park, a public park. And that park had kind of a steep bank. And to get down to the park, you had to walk down this really steep bank. So the city decided to find out if they could put some stairs in. And this is not a very large bank. This is maybe, you know, I'm looking at the actual stairs that were built. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven steps. Seven steps. So not, you know, half half of the staircase to go upstairs in a house. Okay. And uh, so the city gets an estimate to have the stairs installed by, you know, someone that's going to do it up to code and the city standards and all. And the bill is going to be somewhere between $65,000 and $150,000 to build stairs to a park. So this old retired gentleman says, this is bullshit. I'm going to do something about this myself. He goes out. This guy's 73 years old. He hires, like, some some homeless guy to work with him, and all in he builds a set of really nice looking steps for oh I don't know ten thousand dollars no five thousand dollars I mean remember it's gonna be sixty five to sixty five thousand um, dollars or maybe up to one hundred and fifty depending on you know the options and all no he built them for five hundred fifty bucks that was including giving a little bit of money to this homeless dude to help him do it. And they're pretty good-looking stairs. They're probably better than I can do. I have a, an article linked to in the show notes, and what I titled the article was Government Hates Private Solutions to Public Problems. So you can look the article up. 
I'm not going to read the article because the show's gone long today, but I, I want to give you kind of the, the response. The mayor, basically, of, of Toronto says, listen, this guy, yeah, we're going to tear, yeah, they tear the stairs out. They tore them out. But we're not mad at him. He, he realized this was stupid and a ridiculous estimate. He wanted to make a point. His point's well taken. And within a couple of weeks, we'll have stairs put in. And it's going to cost about $10,000. My head hurts. My head hurts to think how these stairs can cost $10,000. And people will say, well, it's government regulation. Yes, and it's government that's putting the stairs in that created the regulation that creates the expense that they don't have to pay because they use your money to pay it. Please let that sink into your deep, thick skulls, especially those younger folks out there in this audience that still think government's a good thing. And that, well, we need this. Do you really? Okay. A lady went out there and posted a bunch of tweets and took some pictures. And you can read the article if you want to. Pointed out all of the code violations in ways that these stairs are dangerous. Um, one of the things she says, they're very slippery when it's wet, when it rains. You could fall off them. Well, that, I think, is an individual's responsibility. Um, and that could be fixed with, basically, when we had our, um, our house in Arkansas, it was a double-wide trailer. And until I built some decks for it, and I had my niece and nephew there, we had kind of a rudimentary deck. We had some, a big, like, just freestanding metal steps that sat there. And they got really slick in, in the rain. So I went out and bought some adhesive, it's kind of like sandpaper textured stuff, and just put strips on it, and it made it perfectly safe. So that could have been easily fixed. Um, she also points out, though, that the stairs are sitting right on the ground and into the dirt. There's no concrete footer. Okay. I, I would say that legitimately looking at these stairs, that it would have made a lot of sense to, uh, to drop some cinder blocks in and some, some satcrete, and that would have made a much better foundation and it would make them last longer and it is probably the case that in some time had they not tore these down they would have needed to be replaced because they would become unstable uh, she also s showed a picture this is just where you, you realize like the nitpicking nanny state is in the minds of people of the rail and the rail comes a little past the last post and it's kind of rough cut lumber and she says this is the end of the hammer handrail Splinterville! Exclamation point. You could get a split. I mean, just, oh. So there's, there's a balance there that, yeah, these stairs probably should have been built a little bit better. But the reality is, you could have easily went in here and the, the, the footers could have been individually dug out, like a flat one level cinder block placed underneath them and the dirt replaced, and it would have been fine. And they would probably be good for 20 years like that. And that's probably the one modification that was needed, and it would have been much better if it had been done right out of the gate. But the guy is 86 years old and took initiative and did it for 550 bucks. You'd think the mayor would come out and go, you know, maybe this should have been a couple thousand bucks, guys, at the most. We're going to see how inexpensively we can do this and make them safe. No, but like, oh, we'll just spend 10000 on friggin' seven stairs. That's almost $1,000 a stair. In the end, even though the mayor was relatively cordial to this guy, I'll tell you why it was. He had to be. The community loved that this man built the stairs, and they were pissed when the stairs got tore out. In, in reality, this mayor didn't like what this guy did. He's a politician like all politicians. This whole thing, like, we're going to make sure this never happens again. How the 
the f did it happen? How the f did it ever become the case? Because this wasn't like he had some insider leak to him. Hey, man, the city's about to, you know, misappropriate sixty-five thousand bucks on seven stairs. This was publicly announced. You know, we are taking an initiative, and we're going to be putting these stairs in, and it's going to cost taxpayers sixty-five to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. They publicly stated this before they started the job. So when you tell me we need government, and and what some people would do is point to this and say, "Hey, look at the stairs the guy built. They weren't completely safe." Well, people fall down stairs all the time. I made a video about banning stairs a long time ago to compare it to gun control to make a point. Just saying. But you, I don't care how safe you build stairs. And you know what they're going to say next? Well, we need a ramp so it's handicap accessible. America with Disabilities Act. I'm sure Canada has something similar. Well, right now it's not accessible to anybody. And this is this is that slippery slope of government. But in the end, how would we fix problems without government? Well, private citizens would step up and do it. And here's my kind of final point with this. I personally believe that if it was generally expected that if there was a problem like this that some citizen group would get together and fix it, that you would get a better quality build for about the same amount of money. There's not a lot more money that needed to go in here. So if instead of having one 86-year-old dude who was pissed off at his city for wasting his money, 73-year-old dude, I'm sorry, and, and a homeless person that was pissed off at the city for wanting to waste $150,000 of his money, you had a small community group that said, hey, when stuff like needs, needs stuff like this, we'll just do it. They would have been thought through a little bit more. Uh, you know what? We should do some sacrete, and we should do some adhe- you know, some 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 adhesion, and maybe yeah, this should be cut off. Because like the whole Splinterville, I mean, what a beanhead this Twitter lady is. So get you know what? Instead of bitching about it, see that's that's the thing. When people want government to do things for them, then they bitch about things instead of correct them. So if she looked at that and said, well, that's kind of splintery, go get your ass some eighty grit sandpaper and a piece of scrap wood as a sanding block, and sand it off. Go get yourself a saw and trim it so it's a little less longer than it needs to be and give it a little bit of a sand job. Well, it's going to rot in the rain. Well, go get your See what I'm saying? Like, this is stone soup. You know the story of... I told the story in the beginning of the show of the Ant and the Grasshopper a lot. I should probably tell children's stories once in a while because most of you folks that are like in your 30s and younger, you don't know these stories. Do you have it? This is another failure of our education system. This is proof that it was better when I was a kid. Stone Soup. The short version of Stone Soup is this guy comes into town and the town's pretty pretty bad off. They don't have a lot of food, so they don't have a lot to share with a stranger. And he wants to stay the night. And they say, well, you can stay, but we don't have anything to give you. You know, if you don't have any money, we don't have any food for you, you're going to have to see to yourself, but yeah, you can stay. So he goes down the end of town, he, he starts up a fire, and um, he needs a pot. So he asks, he says, anybody have a pot so I can cook dinner? Well, one guy says, well, I have a big pot, but I don't have anything to put in it. The guy says, I don't need anything to put in it, I have a magic stone to make stone soup with. And they get the fire going, they fill it up with water, and he puts the stone in it. And, you know, another person's like, well, you know, that soup could use a little bit of onions. So they put a little bit of onion in it. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts coming up with a little bit of stuff. And everybody puts it in the pot. And the whole town has a feast when they thought they didn't have enough to get by with. Because everybody did a little bit. 
And the problem is when you say government's the solution, nobody wants to do anything. And people are, that even want to are afraid. This took courage for this guy to do this. There's been people that have been prosecuted for things like this. But what have I always said? If you do it right, if they come after you, they look stupid. And the one thing politicians and government are afraid of is looking stupid. I know it sounds crazy, but looking really stupid. They don't care if they look stupid to the informed people. They always look stupid to the informed people. They don't want to look stupid to the people that generally support them. And if you went after a 76-year-old man who built a nice little set of stairs for people that were using it, by the way, the, the whole park is full of community gardens. I wonder what the city spends to put in one freaking garden bed in there that I could put in for 50 bucks. Be interesting to know. But yeah, in, in my view, government hates it when the private market provides the solution to something they think they need to do. And this is just another example of that. Real quick, I wanted to finish up with something called civil asset forfeiture. Now, I was not a fan of our last president, Barack Obama. However, he did take some actions, just like Trump has taken some actions, that I find to be you know, sensible things to do under the system that we're in. I want a stateless society. I ain't getting one, so I do have to look at the system as it is and acknowledge this is better or worse. right? So it's like my left eye when I go to the eye doctor. He'll go A or B. Well, I can't see worth a shit with either one of them, but I can see a little better with A. A or B. Well, now B's better, and he finds the best solution he can for me. That's how I think about government when I look at what they're doing. So one of the things that Barack Obama did was really pull back the ability of law enforcement organizations to do something called civil asset forfeiture. Now, if you've been living under a rock and you don't want to, you don't know what that is, let me explain how it works. I pull you over. And I take a look in your car, and I find probable cause to do some searching, or you're dumb enough to tell me when I ask you, and I find out you have $15,000 cash in your car. You're driving kind of an older, beater car. You're coming from Pennsylvania, heading to Texas. And you don't have a real good story about where that money came from. Well, this money must be drug money. You must have drug, drug, drove the drugs up to Pennsylvania, and now you're coming back to Texas with the money. So this money has committed a crime. I can't find any drugs on you. I can't prove that you committed a crime. But I know that you can't prove to me that this money is rightfully yours. And you say, hey, look, man, I just saved my money all my life. And I went to Pennsylvania. I was going to move there permanently, and I decided not to. And I'm coming back, and I'm taking my money with me. I don't believe in banks. That's your story. And it's the truth. But you have no way to prove that. And I just look at you and say, you're young. Car looks like shit. You don't like the kind of person that should have 15 grand on you. I think I'm going to take this money. If you want to protest it, you can go to court and try to prove that you legitimately have claim to this money. And the only proof you have is I've worked my ass off for that money. I've kept some of my income in cash and I've kept it saved up. Or it really is drug money. Let's say it really is drug money. I don't give a shit. I don't care. The concept that your money or your property could have committed a crime is completely unconstitutional. The reason we're talking about this is under Jeff Sessions, he has just re-empowered law enforcement throughout our country 
to go back to this practice heavily of civil asset forfeiture. It never went completely away, but they really had their hands tied under the Obama protocols for it. He has to be, I try to be fair to everybody, even when I don't like them, and I don't like Jeff Sessions at all in any way, period. But I will try to be fair to the man. He did bring them back with some things that do curtail the abuse of that. One is, I believe, under the new guidelines, that if it's a cash issue, it has to be more than $10,000. It might even be $15,000. i am not sure which one. But if you catch somebody with like six grand on them, you can't, you can't just use the, the, the amount of money anymore, which they were doing it with. They were doing it to some people with 500 bucks. So that's it, it actually reduces the total number but it actually increases the damage per action. And, I mean, civil asset forfeiture can be... I've seen it happen to people that take their house. Their kid, they think their child, you know, they think their, their you know, 19-year-old son was dealing drugs out of the house. They can't prove it. Kid doesn't get charged with a crime. Understand that. And then they take the parent's house because they say, you must have known. Things like that. And it has enriched law enforcement organizations in the billions of dollars per year. Um, DEA is like, their highest year was like $45 billion in civil asset forfeiture. Local police departments, sheriff's departments, state police departments, everybody gets in on this game. And they'll, they'll catch somebody with property that they can't, they can't document where it came from. Sometimes they don't even give them an opportunity to. And they seize the property. They seize the property. And what they'll say is, well, you know, one of the defenders of this, I heard say, um, actually it was Jeff Sessions that said it. He said, you know, the last year that these policies were in place, 80 plus percent of the people that had their property seized never even filed recourse in court because they knew they were wrong. No, because you took all of their money, and they had no money to hire or retain a lawyer, and the burden of proof is so high for the individual that it's unattainable. So I've heard cops that hate this, that think it's absolute piracy. And I do believe it. I think it's modern privateering. It's road piracy at the highest level. And that's where most of it happens, on the road, catching people in a lot of small towns, too, in the middle, you know, between two big cities and stuff like that. Because, boy, usually the agency that seizes the money gets to keep it and use it to defer their costs, at least the majority of it. So, you, I mean, that's, that, come on, if you know what privateering is, which is basically legalized piracy, you know, 200 years ago and plus, um, that's, that's exactly what this is. You don't have the stamp of the crown, therefore I'm seizing the property, and I get to keep most of it. Yeah. So I've heard some defend it, and I've heard some opposed to it. And the ones that defend it, I believe that the majority of them really believe they're doing the right thing. I do. I believe the majority of them really believe that most of the time it is drug money, and by taking it off the streets, they're making the streets safer, and they're, they're, they're choking off the drug supply. Well, here's the reality. The drug market has built loss into its model, and it doesn't slow down drugs at all. It just doesn't. If anything, it creates more violence because there's more fighting over you know 
who controls what area, et cetera, if, if, if anything. By making it harder on them, you make it harder on all of them, and they fight more, and it creates more peripheral violence in, in that situation. But we'll let that go. Because here's my point. It's unconstitutional. And I think the only hope that we have to get rid of this thing is to get it before the Supreme Court. I don't think it would get through the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court we have right now would look at it. I know um, Thomas is already on record as this is just not, it should not be done. And I think that it would, it would probably be a heavy decision in, in opposition to it. Because the only case the government can make is, well, it's a good tool for us. And it works. But they can't get, make the case that it's constitutional. For it to be legal, it, I believe it would require a constitutional amendment. And here's why. Our founders made damn sure that to be deprived of your liberty or your property in this country by the Constitution if followed would require due process. And they did it because... Every government at the time was doing this to a huge degree and stealing from its people. And it was one of the things they thought, for all the flaws that they had, when we found this new nation, that's not going to happen. So no matter whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, I kind of look at it like banning guns. You could make the case to me that maybe less people would be killed if we banned guns. You could make that case. I'm not even going to dispute whether it's true or not. What I dispute is that it's my inherent right to self-defense and that I think that we are better off as a society, as an armed society, than as a disarmed society. However, that's my opinion and you have your opinion. But we also live in, the, in a land with a sovereign law and the Second Amendment of the Constitution is not subject to interpretation. It's very clear and the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There is no contract anywhere in legaldom where anybody would have any problem understanding that language other than that one place because people don't like what it means. So if you want to have the government have the authority to infringe my right to keep and bear arms, you need a constitutional amendment. And until you get one, I don't recognize, even within your system that I think is illegitimate, I don't recognize in your own system your right to infringe my right to keep and bear arms. Because it's unconstitutional. Because the Constitution says so. It's pretty damn clear. And even POTUS, right, the, the, the highly esteemed Supreme Court, said it does extend to individual rights. That's precedent. You know, a long road to overhaul that. So I look at civil asset forfeiture the same way. It might be, with certain guidelines, a valid tool in the system that I don't agree with, but it ain't constitutional until you make it such. And there's a process called the amendment process to do that. And if you can't get that done, you don't get to do it. And I think that's what that one... I think I don't care what your opinion is. I think that's what it comes down to. It is not legal under their own rules for them to do this. And they're doing it all the time. And I think if you can't at least bring charges against the individual... Because it's a pretty low standard to bring charges. Conviction is another thing altogether. But to bring charges, if a prosecutor believes there's any evidence that the crime was committed by the individual and can make any case, they can at least take that to a grand jury and ask for an indictment. Most of these civil asset forfeitures are like, we're taking your money in your car. Here, make a phone call. Have somebody come get you. I'm serious. That's how it happens. Or they just take their money and they let them go in their car. They don't want their jalopy. 
They can't get any money for that damn thing. They're in a $2,500 car. They just got $12,000 cash. They don't want that car. It's more trouble than it's worth. So you imagine this. You get pulled over. They take your property from you. And they say you're free to go. And you're never, you're never going to hear anything again about it unless you try to get your property back. That is not the nation that we were found, you know, was left to us by our founders. There is nothing okay about that. There is nothing right about that. And if you're a law enforcement officer that's taking part in this and you have the ability not to, remember your oath. Your oath is not just to obey what your chief tells you to do. Your oath is also to the Constitution of your state and your country. And when you're knowingly and willingly committing unconstitutional acts in the name of doing your duty, you're breaking your fucking oath. I know I've been using that word a little bit more lately, but damn it, there's no other way to put that. You're breaking your fucking oath. Your oath is to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. Just the same type of oath that I took. Now, maybe it's not uphold and defend. I'm sure your wording's differently. But to follow the Constitution. To follow the Constitution. And it's, that is not one that's subject to interpretation. Taking a person's property without due process is unconstitutional. Period. So I know you may end up in situations where you have to be part of it and there's not a lot you can do about it, but I know there's places where you have a lot of discretion. Maybe you should start using it to actually follow your freaking oath. If you want to say somebody's a bad guy that's broken the law, you either be able to prove it or you let them go on with their life without stealing their property from them. That's my thoughts on that. We went really long today, so I'm going to skip the ending segments today. And I'm going, and you know, with the YouTube channel, I kind of did that when I covered uh, Big Think uh, with their their piece on uh, on uh, uh, you know 30 hour work week and uh, being the first place you can come. I want to talk about our song of the day today. I when I when I had John Adam kind of do the next round of songs, I said, hey, maybe think about playing some Ozzy Osbourne. Because uh, a lot of people think of Ozzy Osbourne as kind of like the, the, the devil's son or some shit and being all evil and crap and being for hatred or something like that. And uh, what made me think about that is I, had so, I, I saw somebody that day that I sent uh, John that email with a few other suggestions talking about Ozzy and people with those kind of preconceptions that he was like all for Satanism and evil and stuff. And uh, he mentioned the song Crazy Train. And that's not the song of the day, but if you guys know that song... Um, You know, the, the, the opening lyrics in it are pretty clear that it's not about hate. I mean, that song opens up with crazy, but that's how it goes. Millions of people living as foes. Maybe it's not too late to learn how to love and forget how to hate. Mental wounds not healing, life's a bitter shame. I'm going off the rails on a crazy train. And, and, and you know, this is the guy that's, that's marked to be like, you know, Satan's son or something like that by some people because people look at basically what is theatrics in marketing and they want to have something to bitch about and complain about. Well, I'm kind of glad that he didn't just say, well, Jack asked for that song, so I'm going to kick that song to him. He uh, picked a song that I'm not, I wasn't real familiar with. Uh, it's called Time. Here's some of the lines of that song. For, for those that think that Ozzy doesn't have anything deep or meaningful in his music, the time has come for you to make up your own mind. Stop looking for the answers that you'll never find. Save all your tears for when you really need to cry. Don't wish your life away. Spread your wings and fly. Time waits for no one, yeah. It's never what it seems. 
Stop waiting for tomorrow. Stop living in your dreams. This life is fading away. This life ticking like a time bomb, ready to blow your tortured mind. I know it's wasting away. We don't plan for when it goes wrong. The time that we lose, we will never find time. Can't hide the clock when every line shows on your face. So take it slow, you'll ne or you'll never win the human race. Just live every moment of each day, because death is the price we must all pay. This life is fading away. This life is ticking like a time bomb, ready to blow your tortured mind. I know it's wasting away. We don't plan for when, when it goes from the time that we lose, we will never find time. Tick-tock. Stop living in your dreams. Start living in the moment. Start living your life. Or what did the guy say from the thing that I played about universal basic income in a 30-hour week? Instead of saying, I want my children to have it better than me, why wait? Why not make it better for yourself now so it's even better for your kids tomorrow? Why not be responsible instead of selfless? See, that's the I, I think that's the biggest thing that's been done to people, that's made them cheap, that's made them pliable, that's made them controllable. We have convinced people that being responsible is being selfish. We've confused what the word means. We've made it responsible means to pay your taxes and hold down a job. No, responsible means to see for your own to see to your own happiness. That when you don't like something, to take care of it yourself. To, to, when you look to your children to say, the better of a father I am, the better of a child, and you know, eventually father or mother they'll be. We, we, we've taken the concept of selflessness and we've risen it to the level of responsibility as an attribute. You can be in a, a horribly, horribly selfish, selfish, selfish person and appear selfless. Because your excuse is, well, you know, I'm doing with less or I don't need that or I, this is just where I am. But really, you are, instead of selfless, you're selfish. Because what you're saying is, it's not my responsibility to do more for myself. It's not my responsibility. Somebody else should do this. Or, you know, this is just all I can do. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Or one day I will. One day I'm going to do this. One day. One day. One day. That's really what this song's about. One day. Stop waiting for tomorrow. Stop living in your dreams. This life is fading away. We all have a terminal disease called life. One day, all of our time will run out. What we do with it now is what really matters. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Yeah.